0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud.
1: This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide.
2: Safe liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent.
1: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies
0: will be squarely aimed at the Forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly from Frankly on the Gadigal land of the Aewara Nation. And PK, well, we're well and truly into the home stretch. Less than two sitting weeks left for the year – and the Albanese government has just so much it wants to get done before the politicians rise for the year. More than 25 bills listed to be voted on in the final fortnight. The very big ones, the biggest of all, probably still to come, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, the NAC, the Territories Bill to allow the territories to legalise voluntary assisted dying, and the most controversial and certainly the biggest mountain to climb for the government, the IR bill. Soon we're going to be joined by Amy Ramikas from The Guardian to talk about the sort of eddies and gullies ahead in Canberra. But first, let's delve into state politics for a moment, can we? Take a turn there. Mm-hmm. Because there's an election in your home state of Victoria on Saturday. Labor's going for a third term. Premier Dan Andrews seems to be, well, I don't know, looking on in equal parts hero and demon. The polls have tightened at the business end of the campaign. But before we drill down into what's going on there, PK, can we take a helicopter view and consider what, if any, federal implications there are for this state election? What do you okay, reckon? Okay, I've
0: jumped into the helicopter, even though the truth is I'm very scared of helicopters. <laughs> um, I'm in the helicopter and looking over Victoria and thinking, what are the implications? couple of things. You're right. I think that Daniel Andrews is either loved or loathed. He's, he's a really... Uh, polarising figure. So for those who think he did a good job during the pandemic, is decisive, compassionate, there is strong love, but there are people who are disappointed in him as well and there are more and more of those, particularly in some of the, those Labor heartland areas, which I do think is a problem for the Andrews government. He's also seeking his third term and, and that's always an issue full stop for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sort of it's time factor sometimes, but he's facing a pretty Pretty, pretty all over the shop opposition that has been dogged by its own issues. Matthew Guys, the opposition leader. A lot of the issues in the campaign have been um, very much around cost of living issues. You know, the Libs want to give $2 public transport rides. Uh, Labor wants to go back to basically state-owned electricity. Um, really kind of trying These to get to really those These are really populist pictures, aren't they? Both oh, of them. So you completely populist.
2: I'd like to note here, everybody, because um, if you listen to Patricia on Breakfast, you'll know she says things like this often. You've completely ignored my question and you've gone straight to the analysis <laughs> of the Victoria state election. So we'll come back to the federal implications. Let's stay where you've taken us because that's very populous. It's been a very willing campaign. Um, the, the Libs have made it all about Dan Andrews' popularity or unpopularity. And as you say, you know, for some he's a rock star, for some he's public enemy number one. How much do you think the COVID pandemic response will be the key element influencing the outcome of this election then?
0: I I consider it to be the sleeper issue in the campaign. So if you if you listen to the the polling, the announcements, it's barely mentioned. So then you'd think, how can you argue that it's the sleeper Mm. issue? I'll tell you how. It is a defining issue for Victorians. That is when the Premier was in their lives dominantly. Um, it became a household name. And, and state politics doesn't always, it's not a household name kind of gig often, but he did become that. And I think people have really strong views about how that's worked out for them, whether it's lauding him for saving lives or... Being angry that their livelihoods uh, were were um, affected deeply with the longest lockdown, at least uh, second yeah. longest in the world, they say, but certainly the longest in Australia, and people know that. So, back to the question. I won't avoid your question. I'm nothing like Victoria. No, we'll the come back to that. We'll come back to that. Let's right, stay right. with
2: Victoria and, and, and what you think is sort of happening because the polls have tightened this week. If the resolve poll is correct, both parties on 36. Um, Labor's still ahead, two party preferred, but where do you reckon it's going? And And what part of this story are the teals? Because just like the federal election, there's a few, there's several teal candidates, aren't there?
0: Yeah, the teals are going to be interesting. My view is that the teals don't have the kind of momentum they had at the federal election for several reasons. The biggest one is Scott Morrison. (laughs) I think having Scott Morrison and uh, the the federal Liberals to campaign against as the governing party gave them um, a, a different kind of momentum, it's a different political environment in Victoria, it's Labor that's been in power for these eight years it's a really different uh, environment. Having said that, the teals are, um, are I think, competitive in several places uh, that overlap some of those areas that you saw them be successful in the Victorian seats federally. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't rule out that there'll be perhaps a teal pickup in a couple of places, but I think... Uh, we're not going to see the same sorts of things we saw federally. And if you look at um, even some of the polling that's been done, you know, they may have a chance in places like Brighton and Caulfield, perhaps Kew, but um, it's not a certainty. And, uh, of course, Everything is about getting the magic number and getting a majority. Um, I think we're really possibly in minority government territory for the Andrews government if you look at the polling. I'm not calling it mm. because you'd be an idiot to. But I, I get strong 1999 vibes from this election. And if you're listening to this, it's a national podcast. Can you podcast. remind us what happened in 1999? Yeah, it's when um, Kennett got unexpectedly smashed. Oh, yeah because he didn't read the room of what was happening in regional Victoria. And I do feel like Labor in the last couple of days are starting to realise that perhaps they've got a bigger problem on their hands. But there has been a view in Labor that, nah, you know, the, the, the Matthew Guy opposition is a joke and they have had scandal after scandal. They've had lots of issues, the opposition in Victoria. And so they were unelectable. Yeah, sure, maybe they have those issues and I don't think they've run a particularly excellent campaign. No. But that doesn't mean that people don't want to go third party and that's where you get into minority government Yeah, you're
2: right. I remember that, Kenneth, people didn't really see that coming and he was such a strongman leader in the same way Dan Andrews is. Dan Andrews, the notion of Dan Andrews in minority government is an interesting notion too because, you know, a lot of people often say it's kind of my way or the highway with Dan Andrews, don't they?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think he'd have to he'd have to change a lot, and they'd have to be a, a rethink about you know his longevity, all sorts of things. Look, you know what? We're recording this Thursday morning. You might know the result by the time you're listening to this on a walk or run, right? Um, so, uh, lots still to play out. Interestingly, a lot of people have pre polled uh, at record numbers. Yes. Some people see that as an indication. About something, oh, I don't know. I think people just hate going and voting. I on think we've just changed our habits. So yeah, I, think that's I do. All that is. I think we read into it a bit too much. But I do think we'll have a record third-party independent vote. Okay, I'm certain of that because people don't like the two alternatives
2: so much. Mm. Um, All right, well, look, this is a federal politics podcast, so let's go back to the implications federally. I mean, I guess you've named one there already. If teal candidates get up, that would start to – people would start to see the sort of the teal phenomenon as something that's becoming embedded.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think federally uh, there's also a view from some of the federal MPs who lost seats about looking and thinking, you know, are we done as a brand um, and what's going to happen in these areas. There's overlapping areas that I talk about, you know, that, that where the federal seat and the state seats align. Mm. That's how they view it, some of them. I personally think that state and federal politics are quite well differentiated by voters more than people realise. And so I think some of those federal implications are too read into, but... I do know that the Albanese government is nervous about what's happening in Victoria uh, and what might happen to Labor and the Labor brand in Victoria, Um, and also for their ongoing, you know, how are they going to work with whatever transpires in Victoria. They also, other point to make, are worried about more seats being lost to the Greens in the inner city in Victoria as well, which is an ongoing issue, of course, for Labor. So lots of issues there. Um, We'll know, of course, on Saturday night, or if it might be a long vote. That's what Anthony Green told me, because there's so many people standing. I mean, the the ballot paper I received was so, because I'm on silent electoral rollout, I get it at home. And I was like, said to my partner, I actually, I don't even know where to start. I feel (laughs) sick looking at this ballot paper. So, Let's park it. Big deal, big state after a long pandemic where I think there's a lot of sort of people still regrouping. I'm one of them. Let's see how
2: it all plays out. Okay, we'll talk about it, no doubt, more next Party Room next week. There's so much to talk about this week, though, PK, in federal politics. I think we should bring in our guest. What do you reckon? Let's do it.
0: Amy Ramakis is political reporter for Guardian Australia and our guest in the party
2: room. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Hello, Amy. It's great to have you back before the end of the year. Amy, the government is racing against the clock to pass a big swag of legislation before the year is out. The one that could stymie them, could disappointment, is the IR bill, where Independent Senator David Pocock holds the key vote and he's not there yet, it would seem. Have a listen.
1: At the moment, I couldn't hand on heart vote for the whole thing. This is a massive omnibus bill. I think uh, there's 23 different things that this omnibus is seeking to do. So there's a lot of moving parts and we've got to get it right.
2: Got to get it right. ACT Centre's still not over the line by the sounds of that, despite lots of talking, lots of tweaking of the bill by the government. What do you think, Amy? Will the government get David Pocock and the legislation over the line?
1: Oh, God. I don't think anyone can ever say what the Senate or a senator will do because it changes every single minute in this place. Uh, I don't think... even know why I asked you that. I've been watching <laughs> politics for decades and there's always, you know,
2: this thing and you can't tell and then, you know, Brian Harradine or Nick Xenophon will do something oh. wacky at the end. And... Ex-
1: exactly. Well, exactly. Names that are blasts from the past. Yes. <sighs> I don't think we're going to get something wacky in this case, but I do think uh, it is a immovable feast. Uh, But I do think that the government is still very hopeful that they can get this done, Uh, and I think that because they're willing to still be negotiating, that they're willing to still put amendments through, uh, and they seem pretty positive that they're going to get a resolution. But I just don't think any of us can say because it's the Senate and you can never tell with the Senate.
0: Yeah, well, Labor has shown they are, as you mentioned, willing to give. Though, I mean, they want the legislation through by the end of the year. They don't want it running into next year. It's politically tricky for that to happen for them. They need it off their plate, and you know, and and also to to look like they're delivering on the wages promise they've made.
2: But also, but also they don't want to give the employer groups all that time to sort of really gear up and launch a campaign against them. That's why it's politically dangerous, isn't it, for them to wait?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And we're already seeing campaigns where it's going to bring about the end of industry as we know it, you know, from coffee shops through to mining. And the government really doesn't want those campaigns to take hold because then you're fighting a culture war as well as trying to get people in the Senate to agree to your legislation. And I think the government's fear is is that if they carve out multi-employer bargaining, which is the, you know, the bone of contention in this bill, then they'll never get it through. It's kind of like this is their time to do it. If they don't do it now, it's not happening. And if they carve it out, it'll be almost impossible for them to then bring it back and and have that negotiated. So it's do or die, I feel, is how the government is feeling about this.
0: Do or die. So where will they do or they die? Um, 50 people per workplace to define a small business, would they go? that hot? Huh?
1: Uh, I'm, it's hard to say. They're definitely going over 15. I think we all know that. Where, where it lands between 20 and 50 is going to be, uh, you know, the, the big sort of tipping point. And uh, how they manage to convince business owners that they're not necessarily going to be dragged to a negotiating table if they don't want that is another battle that they have to overcome. Because we're seeing Tony Burke come out and just sort of saying there is so much misinformation about this bill. If you have an EBA... You don't have to be taking part of this. We're seeing 95% of businesses will not have to take part in this. If you have a positive relationship between employer and employees, you do not have to take part of this. So they're desperately trying to get the message out of there that this is just for low-paid industries where bargaining hasn't worked, not necessarily your local hairdresser or your local coffee shop, although I will say those people deserve wage rises too. Mm. So we're in this very weird situation where we're sort of debating who deserves a wage rise when the truth is everyone does except for CEOs.
2: It's um, just sort of looking from afar because I haven't been down in Canberra but it's interesting to me strategy here, or if it is a strategy, I wonder what you both think. We've seen the the rhetoric from the employer groups and the complaints from the employer groups really you know, getting louder and louder, really ramping up. You've got Tony Burke answering them. You've got the Prime Minister answering them, Bill Shorten answering them, Katie Gallagher, others, but not so strident response coming from the ACTU and the union movement more generally yet. Not in the same not in the same volume. And I wonder if that's a strategy, a tactic, because they don't want to look like the scary unions that the business groups are portraying them as. Am I right in that? Is that a right observation, do you think? Yeah,
1: I I think absolutely. And and that's Basically, what I'm hearing from people in the union movement is that they're sort of tools down at the moment because they're hoping that the negotiations in the Senate and Tony Burke and David Pocock are having good faith negotiations. They're talking constantly. Tony Burke is attending David Pocock's town halls. like There is Mm. a good flow of communication that is going on between there. They want that process to play out. They don't want to give any grist to the mill that the unions are going to clamp down and they're going to be involved in every single workplace in Australia. But also, it has to be noted contextually, unions are not what they were in the 70s and the 80s. They represent about 14% of workers at the moment, and mostly in feminised industries like teachers and early childhood education, nurses, that sort of thing. So, this idea that you're going to have mass wildcat strikes in a country that has not had big industrial action for the last 30 years because our laws don't really allow for it, the Fair Work Commission is still going to play a role here. All of the rules around striking still stay in place. It's not going to be, you know, mass walk-offs. That has to also be said. So the unions are sort of saying, support us, uh, support this legislation, but we're not going to do the big counter campaign as yet. We'll see where, where it lands at the end of this week.
0: Yeah. Now, are there other speed bumps ahead for the government's legislative agenda this year, Amy? I mean the National Anti-Corruption Commission will go to the Senate this week for a vote next week. This obviously was a signature election pitch, a huge issue in the electorate. Um, you know, a big campaigning point for the teal independence. Uh, the government hasn't shown a lot of interest to budging on the language of exceptional circumstances for public hearings. And I know that even the the Liberal MP Bridget Archer has crossed the floor to vote with the um, crossbench on on making that a harder definition. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, Helen Haynes is really pushing for that in her speech on, on these amendments. She's saying she's never, she would never ask for carte blanche public hearings. That's not what she's talking about. What she's talking about is public inquiries when there is public interest. And that is what the crossbench wants. And that's going to be one of the problems for the government in the Senate, because, you know, there's crossbenches and the Greens in the Senate who are also pushing for this. So that is going to be a stumbling block for the government where they're not necessarily going to get their way, but if they want to get it passed with that, you know, bipartisan support, it is something that they're going to have to take into account. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to move on it because the opposition is very much against public hearings and will give their support in the Senate. But in terms of criticism from people who campaigned on transparency in government after this bill is passed, that is what the government is going to face. It's
2: going to be a really frantic race to the end here. Um, with these debates you know, and others going on. Um, Amy, meanwhile, the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, uh, gave an address at the Cedar Dinner this week um, where he said he was concerned about the potential for a spiral in wages as workers demand more money to deal with the cost of living crisis. Inflation, here
1: he is. Let's say we all accepted the idea, which there's a natural appeal to this, inflation 7%, I should be compensated for that in my wages. If that were to happen, what do you think inflation would be next year? seven percent plus or minors and then we've well, got to get compensated for that seven percent seven and this is what happened in the 70s and 80s and as I talked about that turned out to be a disaster
2: okay now that's true it did turn out to be a disaster and led to a recession and led to many years of high unemployment but there's been an Uproar in response to this speech from the Reserve Bank Governor Amy. Um, he, in the past, has been in favour of wage rises. Now, very clearly, since the inflation has jumped to seven percent and beyond, he's saying, "Well, you can't be demanding wage rises of that level." But in fact, people aren't, are they? I mean, that's not where the wage rises that are being awarded are. So, is this just a, a cautionary tale? from From the Governor, is this a change in his stance? Why has it created such an outcry?
1: Uh, for listeners, I'm currently just pinching my nose at this <laughs> whole conversation not not at you, Fran, just you know at where we are where you know somebody who is on close to a million dollars is warning people against pay rises which may you know help them keep up with the cost of living because as you say, that is not happening other than CEOs. Who is getting a pay rise north of 7% mm. every year? Who, or close who is, to 7%. Or close to. Like in most people, when you talk to them about their EBA negotiations, the ABC is going through it at the moment, like, you know, rejecting offers that are well below the cost of living. Everyone's talking about 35 if they're lucky if they're lucky mm. that's that's still a real wage cut on top of 10 years of compounded wage cuts so the I, and i got in trouble on twitter on this from a couple of economists who were saying that well he was saying that the wage price spiral isn't happening well yes that that is what he was saying but why bring it up as something that he's worried about when yeah. in reality it is not something that is happening for workers none of us are getting pay rises in line with inflation unless you happen to already be on a very good salary and are getting a bonus from your organisation.
0: Interestingly, Bill Shorten uh, joined me on RM Breakfast this week and, you know, he's a former workplace relations minister, former Labor leader, former union leader of the AWU, You know, knows a bit about industrial relations. It's fair to say. I think most people would agree with that. And he, well, he didn't hold back at all. He said, have you noticed that all the people arguing against wage rises uh, are over $100,000 a year? And I actually thought he just... Whack, You know, he just hit the nail on the head in terms of public sentiment on these issues, Amy. And, you know, then I had other people uh, in the government, you know, texting me who listened to the show saying, you know, is this the same guy referring to Philip Lowe, um, you know, who who got the uh, interest rate rise prediction wrong as well. So there is a frustration with this RBA governor.
1: Well, there there is. And I would not want to be the RBA governor of of anything. I would not want to be in charge of a central bank. But it is also (laughs) true. Me neither. Like, (laughs) it seems terrible. But there are no workers' representatives on the RBA board. There is nobody, I imagine, given, you know, uh, how the representatives are are divvied up, who is making under $100,000 on the RBA board. And so every time they talk about an interest rate rise or they do increase interest rates and that's passed on, They talk about about how they need to do this because otherwise we're going to see inflation last for much longer and that's Mm. going to be terrible for the economy all true. What they don't talk about is the very real world impact these interest rate rises are having on people who are earning, in most cases, under $75,000 a year. That's that's basically where the Australian wages is at. Uh, and me, most people earn under that. And so when you're suddenly paying $1,000 more in interest payments than you were six months ago, that is having a huge impact on your budget. And we know that. We know that there are more people who identify as middle class going to food bank for their groceries. We know that there are more people who identify as middle class who are asking charities for help on their energy bills because it's not just interest rates. It's everything. It is groceries. It is interest rates. It is uh, petrol. It is energy. But there's
2: no pain-free way through this, is there? I mean, the governor is right, as you said, when when he said they have to keep putting up interest rates to try and knock off inflation to try and sort of cap it and start pushing it down. And if if... If wage rises were at that level, that would be inflationary. I mean, that's that's correct, isn't it? Oh,
1: well, yeah, it is. But like the wages aren't going to no, reach that level. No, I agree. <laughs>
2: I agree. So it is interesting to me that this governor, who you know, Labor was quite supportive of this governor in opposition when he was arguing, begging almost for employers to give wage rises. I just don't know why this governor is intervening at this point with this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, well I th- I think it's probably the people he's talking to and that goes back to the yeah. point of why don't we have worker representatives on the RBA board? Why don't we have more real people saying this is the impact it's having? Because yes, you're absolutely right, but what when what we don't hear the RBA talking about or anyone who is controlling, you know, monetary policy is how much profit yeah. a lot of companies are making and how much profit the banks are now making from having millions of billions of more dollars flowing in to their coffers from interest rate rises.
0: Yeah. Now, pivoting to another issue, if we can, that's devastating for so many people at the moment. Um, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced $50,000 grants for small businesses and and not-for-profits impacted by the New South Wales floods during his visit to the uh, just smashed and devastated town of Yugara, The town was hit by what's been described as a sort of inland tsunami, right? Unbelievable images. And for the people who've, who have just had to endure it, oh, my heart goes out to them. But, Amy, the PM is offering money, but you know people are saying this isn't enough. Uh, some have pointed out the sort of contradictions. He said that that town will rebuild. Others have been given buyouts, like in Lismore.
1: Is there going to be a national plan on all of this? Well, there needs to be a national plan because these are not one in one hundred year events anymore. These are happening very regularly, and they're going to continue to happen. And uh, on the money, it's it's great, you know, that there is money for businesses and local primary producers, but individuals are still having to sort of get by on a thousand dollars, and with an extra four hundred dollars if they've got kids. When you are, you know, homeless, when you've lost everything, that that's not enough money to to, to get by when you're trying to just basically get everyday essentials. There does need to be a plan. Jackie Lambie has called for a parliamentary committee to be set up to look at Australia's disaster response, uh, and that is in response to the latest CSIRO and bomb report on on the state of the climate, which, you know, shocking, spoiler, everyone, it's getting hotter and natural disasters are becoming more frequent and they're getting worse. Uh, She wants to see, you know, how ready we are to respond to this. And I think that's somewhere that the government is going because we seem to be seeing these every few months uh, and it's not getting any less devastating, it's not getting any less easy and we're not seeing an immediate response that sort of goes, this is what our answers are mm. and I think it's because we don't have those yet.
2: I think they're difficult and is it, you know, we we'll be back to the discussion about some kind of national government um, insurance underwriting pool for all these people who now can't get insurance or won't be able to be insured after you have one of these events. Um, planning laws, you know, these are these are difficult things in a federation and they're costly. And, and, you know, speaking of cost, it all comes in the same week that the climate minister, Chris Bowen, got back from the COP27 conference in Egypt, you know, saying that Australia was an instrumental player in holding the line to maintain the Glasgow commitment to keep global warming below one and a half degrees Celsius. This is, you know, against the backdrop of these floods. Bowen said he'd assumed before COP that every climate summit would build on what had been agreed before. He said, I assumed you didn't need to fight for one and a half degrees, but when I got there, there was a real push to water it down. You know, this is not a good sign if globally there's a push to water it down, and yet, as you mentioned, we've got the CSI report and the bomb report saying things are getting hotter. We all know that that's true because we see it play out in our, in our backyards.
1: Yeah, it's... The world is not in a good state at the moment. I think we can all <laughs> agree on that. It's just, it just you know, feels good
2: to say it out loud sometimes. Yeah, it doesn't does.
1: It. it just, everyone just take a breath and just, yep, yeah, we are not in a good place at the moment. Uh, holding the line at 1.5 is being seen as a win, which shows how you know we're not in a good place at the moment. There is a little bit of hope that we are going to see governments do more, but the, but the nudge of it all is that it's all coming down to money now, and nobody wants to pay. Uh, everyone wants to talk a big game. Everyone says, "Oh yes, we need to do more," but nobody wants to actually spend the money that you need to do it. Uh, and we're seeing that with the loss and damage fund debate, where we're having the opposition dog whistle about how we're considering spending money overseas instead of looking at people back home. And if we take that attitude, we are not going to get anywhere on anything because we have a responsibility in Australia to look out for our Pacific region because we are a very big player in it and we have contributed to climate change and they're in trouble and we need to do what we can to help those nations get through what is coming as best as we can. And if we start going down this road of this debate, and I say in inverted commas, of if we give money to the Pacific and to other nations who are struggling with climate change, instead of looking after people back home with energy bills, we are going to end up in a very dark place in this country. And I really hope we can pull up because this is the last thing we need. We actually need to come together and stay on a path towards action rather than regressing 20 years, 10 years into a fight that makes no sense and benefits no one. Yeah, that's
2: exactly right. Nothing like high energy bills back home. And, of course, they're only going to get higher because the clunky sort of messy move from fossil fuel energy to renewables is going to be an extra expense too. Nothing like that to try and sort of plunge us all back in the climate war. Amy, that's a depressing thought, but it's <laughs> terrific to have you on. Thank you very much, <laughs> as Deli- always. Delivered in an upbeat oh! way. See
1: you, guys. <laughs> Bye. Yay, the world's ending. See ya. See Amy. Bye.
2: We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition.
1: Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order.
0: And it's time for our question time, and this is an interesting one from Andrew. Andrew in Australia, as he calls himself, on Twitter. Uh, and he asks, why is Labor ramping up migration during a housing and rental crisis? Mass migration was not part of their mandate that they talked to the election.
2: Well, that's true. It wasn't part of their mandate, except there's a couple of points I'd take with you, Andrew in Australia. That is a great name, I have to say. Um, it's not mass migration. What Labor is proposing is to take it back, basically up to the levels of historic migration. During the pandemic, we, we cut migration off altogether. The numbers of dropped dropped. Um, we can see the, the result of that in our economy, the labour shortages, the acute labour shortages. We see shops and cafes and businesses that aren't open five or six days a week anymore because they just can't get the staff. Um, so that is a critical element for our, for our economy. There's also skill shortages and a global um, race, basically, for the skills that are available. So we need to you know, get our migration numbers in order and systems in order so we can start competing for those vital skills that we need to import. And we've Always needed to import. Australia is a country based on migration. Our economy grows through migration. Your point about housing and rental, I really do agree with. I think all governments, state and federal, need to come together to do something about housing. Housing is unaffordable for most people under the age of 40 in most cities and now some regions, thanks to the pandemic. And there is a rental crisis in our country. There is no cheap. Uh, rental accommodation for the lowest paid amongst us. And um, that is just not okay. It is at crisis point, but the thing, the two things, I think, need to be treated separately.
0: Yeah, I think they do too. And, you know, we've got massive labour shortages. I think, if I can put this argument out there as a um, beneficiary of migration, uh, because, you know, my parents both migrated here on a ship, it is a... It is. It is. It's what. It's the signature thing that's made our country. I think our indigenous heritage and and that mass migration and multiculturalism. So you know, it's it's not a bad thing. But if it's managed badly, of course, it can become bad. And so the government has to take very seriously the housing issues, and not create this, which I really worry about. This idea that you know the immigrants are taking um, our houses. Or our jobs. Or our jobs. Yeah. Right. And so, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, yeah, uh, you have a plan to make more housing. You have a plan to reform uh, the laws which create these sort of incentives for for um, people to you know oh, God, am I going to go near negative gearing? I think yeah, I'm about to, Fran. I mean, because I think yeah. the
2: time of government went near it again.
0: Yeah, well, they were a bit frightened. They were a bit sort of gun-shy after 2019. But, wow, you need to look at all of this because yeah. it is a massive issue, like you say, but and I also, don't think and also you just need, cancel migration.
2: No, you don't. And also they need to look at skills, and this was part of Labor's policy, but, you know, it's, it's nowhere near enough yet to make sure that you are investing in skills at home so there's not this narrative that, you know, we're just shipping in workers and they're taking our jobs. Uh, we have skills shortages but we also have a workforce here that needs to be you know have greater access to skills we need to get our skills regime into a better state here you know our TAFE and and uh, other skills based training you know we need to really have a good look at it it's it's lagging behind it needs reform and uh, Labor has promised to do that that was a big part of the um the summit that happened when uh, Anthony Albanese first won government and you know they need to follow through and get cracking on this they need
0: to get cracking. All right, that, that's it for The Party Room. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom. You can email, if you like email, to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au. I like email.
2: I'm yeah, I like very comfortable with email. Remember, you can follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And also, Fran, it's your final episode of Frankly on Friday night, right? Who are your guests? Well, we've got a great lineup. We've got Richard E. Grant, a lot of people's favourite British actor. He's coming in, especially, to the Frankly couch, which is fantastic. And we've also got Vicar and Linda on the couch and singing a song for us with the house band for Frankly, the Fanatics. So that's a bit special. And Joel Creasy is coming too. So it's um, we've actually recorded it. It's a really terrific episode. The season's been... Great. Short, but great. And I can't believe we're at the end of it already. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping people have loved it. Time for a dry
0: martini for Fran Kelly. Kick back. Um, I think so. Um, all, all of your guests I actually really like, so that's an excellent episode. Thanks, Fran. See you next week. Thanks, i See you.
1: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.